Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. There was a famous thing called slip, slap, slop in Australia to stop, get people to slip on a hat, slop on the sun cream. And I said, nobody mentioned food or smoking. You know, if you smoke in the sun, you've got two lots of carcinogen damaging your sun. And it's been shown over and over again that that increases skin damage. On the other hand, if you drink a glass of red wine, eat some hummus and some olives, those counterbalance the direct damage from the sun. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. I am so excited about today's podcast episode. Professor Robert is on the pod talking about his incredible new book, How to Live. I've recommended his previous books that are focused on the topic of cancer, such as Keep Healthy After Cancer. But this new book appears to cover every FAQ I've come across throughout the years of lecturing, speaking and demoing across the country and internationally. I highly, highly recommend this book with over 500 references in the back, but explained in plain language in the text. Prof has really created a book that is super engaging and cuts through the noise, but it also tackles some of the most controversial topics in an open-minded manner, which I think is incredibly useful in today's misinformation environment. On today's pod, you will learn about toxins in food, chemicals in household products, and whether to be worried about those, hormone disruption, and what toxic load refers to, milk and cancer, xenoestrogens, which are synthetic estrogens, what they actually mean and how to avoid them, EMF and whether there's evidence of harm, that's electromagnetic frequency, the beauty and utility of colorful food, why the gut is central to health and well-being, and tips and actions for you to take today 
to live better. As a reminder, Professor Robert Thomas is a consultant oncologist at Bedford and Addenbrooke's hospitals, a clinical teacher at Cambridge University and visiting professor of sports and nutritional science at the University of Bedfordshire. He is life's lead of a lifestyle and cancer research unit, and he is also a medical advisor to the website cancernet.co.uk. This is a brilliant podcast episode. I really hope you enjoy it and onto the pod. Okay, I want to talk about your book. First of all, how on earth did you find the time to, to write this book? Because it is, if I could describe it in a word, it's comprehensive. You know, you've got over 500 references in this. And as I know, this is going to be the skimmed down version of the book. You must have written, you know, upwards of twice the amount of content to get it down into here. What, what was that? What was that experience like? Well, as you know, you've written several books. It's it's uh, you know it's it's satisfying because when you when you search for information and when you give a talk or uh, write a paper, you know you really have to understand the subject quite well. Um, so it's a good way of educating yourself in the writing process. I mean, fortunately, we you know I've been doing lifestyle related research for over twenty years and written a fair amount of papers, up to 100 papers on different subjects, whether that's exercise, polyphenols, gut health, sugar. You know, um, you know, I was getting so much criticisms from people saying you shouldn't stop people eating sugar, that obviously the only way to defend yourself is to write an evidence review so you can have an intelligent argument. So all that data was essentially there. Uh, we added some and we had contributions from various people like uh, someone from the Royal Horticultural Society looking at the benefits of plants, etc. So I did get some great help from people. Um, but it, but it's, it's, the, it's the process of changing a medical paper into a, a, into a book which is aimed at the general public uh, is the challenge. And I, I wouldn't say I'm naturally gifted in writing, so that took a lot longer. Um, but of course, it is through a publishers, so they do cover your back and rewrite chapters of sort of scientific blah blah and convert it into uh, lay language. So it, I, I was very grateful for that, uh, and that's why I think it compared to my previous books, it's much more readable. Yeah, because your previous books, I always recommend to friends and colleagues. And unfortunately, I've had a number of, of people, as, as you know, um, that unfortunately have been diagnosed with cancer. And they, they look straight away um, to, to me and other people, you know, to, to offer some advice. And I always recommend your your, your other books because they are brilliant. And they, like you said, they're a bit more um, medically focused. They, they don't shy away from the science, which I think a lot of people appreciate. But this is almost like, you know, an FAQ section of the commonest questions that I get asked about covering everything from the environment. And you don't shy away from subjects here. You, you talk about the environment, you talk about um, toxins, you talk about um, fats and cholesterol and all these different elements that I'm, I'm sure you get asked about pretty much daily in clinic. Well, what I, what I get, to, I mean, patients like, um, you know, they, they want to help themselves, the vast majority of patients. So, you know, the days of um, paternalism have, have gone. You know, if you had time, they would love to have a conversation what they can do when they leave clinic. Um, how, you know, and, and the more I think people understand that these things do actually work, they're more likely to, to change. 
Where people get confused is one doctor is telling them not to exercise or not or eat as much sugar as you want, and another doctor is telling them another thing, and they feel you know demotivated. But if they they get a clear um, message which they believe in, uh, they're more likely to to change. And you know I am getting patients from around the country saying you know they've gone to their doctors and the doctors said oh no. There's nothing you can do. It's just a genetic disease. And that could be talking about, you know, cholesterol, blood pressure, cancer, joint pains, anything. But they're told there's nothing they can do. It's a genetic disease. You just have to take the medication. And people are pushing back and saying, no, you know, I'm not going to go on to that statin. I mean, I saw a guy yesterday who had a cholesterol of 6.8 and declined statins. And he followed the, the guidelines. OK, it took him 18 months, but he's got a cholesterol of 4.1 now and feels great. Uh, I know, you know, he's a particularly motivated individual, um, but nobody would say, oh, you're you're putting that man at risk with that advice because he's now not on a statin. It's better that he's not on a statin and has a low cholesterol. Um, You know, the same applies for cancer. We know that, um, you know, there are a lot lot of very uh, unfortunate young people or any people get cancer and it comes back and it's dreadful. But the evidence is there that if you change your lifestyle, you do have a reduced risk of the cancer coming back. You have reduced risk of the uh, serious chronic diseases you get after cancer treatment. So it's all about reducing your odds. And, uh, you know, I, I believe most people want to hear those odds. They want to know what to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's that, you know, that delicate combination of compassion and empathy for one situation with the tools and the information. And I think the way you've presented it as well is very accessible and it just gives people the impetus and the motivation to make changes because, you know, like you said, that that sort of traditional paternalism that has been inbuilt in the medical education system, particularly perhaps when you were in medical school as well, you know, that that is slowly dying off and it, and it should do because we need to have a bit more of a uh, a, a compatible relationship with people. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and, and, you know, it is changing, but it, I think it's changing too slowly. Uh, and, and it is frustrating, you know, it, you've got a, you're a busy practice, someone comes in, blood pressure a bit raised, you have a chat, you know, they come back a month later. I mean, GPs don't rush into giving drugs. I have to say, I'm not criticising, mm. but, you know, they're limited mm. time and a lot of people don't change. Um, but I found with persistence and, and um you know, with knowledge, they can. I mean, for example, I I, I took a, a non-steroidal this is about 20 years ago before a marathon. The worst thing you can do, by the way, because you get dehydrated and it concentrates. And I had high blood pressure for a year and there's no way I was wow. going to go on antihypertensives. I knew what I'd done wrong. Uh, and I just, you know, took celery and, and beetroot smoothies and cut down my salt and now my blood, pre- you know, a year later, blood pressure is 119 over 65, you know. So uh, I know that's a case of one. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, and I hear stories from lots of other motivated people. And it's such a shame when, when you get a patient coming up to you and going, I said, what medication are you on? And they say, just the usual doc. You know, the usual, as you know, is, you know, anti-indigestion, anti-blood pressure, laxatives, statins, uh, anti-diabetic costing themselves a lot of trauma and side effects, but also the country billions of pounds a year in medication which could be avoided. 
Mm, yeah, you know what? I, I I I literally had a patient like that on Sunday night who came into A and E, and we, you know, he came for an unrelated issue, and I asked him about his uh, medication list, and I think it's because they've been on these meds for so long that it's just become habitual and become normalised, and he was like bit of blood pressure, bit of diabetes, bit of uh, uh, gourd, uh, you know, a little bit of your stomach. That, and you look at the list, and you're like, oh, my God, there's <laughs> just so many on here. I mean, I know he came in for a completely different reason. But I think this time, particularly in a post-pandemic era, it marks a, a, an, a moment where it, it could almost be like our Anya and Beveren moment, where we actually create something within our culture that encourages people to yes with compassion take control of our lifestyles and our health such that we reduce the burden on the nhs and we actually give people the power and the tools to do so by changing our food landscape and getting a government in that actually encourages that as well make it makes a real real effort to do so yeah no i i, I think that's uh you know it's it's it, i always present um i mean the, I mean, apart from being on your show, which is, you know, the highlight of my year, I have to say, you know, I've stopped being invited by drug companies to conferences because all I do is tell people not to take drugs. So, you know, I'm not I'm not going to any fans from the drug industry. Uh, but, you know, I always show in my talks a guy who came to me with prostate cancer, it's just low grade prostate cancer. And he was he was suitable for active surveillance. So, you know, we can just watch, see how he goes. But he was on the usual, you know, he had 10 different medications. So I was had the fortune of meeting him every three or four months for the first two years. And every time he came, he managed to stop one of his medications. And 18 months later, we managed to get him on off everything. And it was wow. so rewarding. And at the same time, his PSA and his prostate cancer got better. So most of the conversation wasn't about his prostate cancer. It was about, you know, you know, indigestion, do these other things. And he was really grateful. Um, so, you know, sometimes... Um, you know, having a disease which gets you into the medical profession or seeing a doctor like yourself gives mm. you the opportunity to sort of work on the whole picture, not just one of the issues. Because they're, they're all related at the end of the day, aren't they? You know, it's all yeah, chronic absolutely. disease. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you talk about uh, the relationship actually between um, a whole bunch of different lifestyle-related illnesses in the book as well. And I think, you know, it's uh, the, the, the challenge is scaling up that, scenario that you've just described right there and i think it comes down to yes a lot more medics talking about this as we are at the moment on this pod but also giving people the tools and incentivizing it and you know so even subsidizing things like fruits and vegetables or cook-alongs or you know yeah, all yeah. these different lateral thinking movements that we we can't do at an individual level we have to rely on on a government level yeah, and, and some doctors are worried about the medical legal issues. That if you stop a statin and they get a heart attack, they'll be sued. And I think that there needs to be a built-in protection from that. Mm. Um, so I've only had two complaints in the last 10 years, and one was a, a, an end-stage bladder cancer. And I did say, look, there's no point in having chemo. It's very toxic. It's very unlikely to help you. And I tried to talk about lifestyle. And they actually sort of made a complaint. They say all the doctor was talking about was getting me to eat better. Fortunately, that was upheld by the ombudsman, and that was encouraging. But still, many doctors are sort of worried about stopping treatment and if they then go on to develop an ease. But that should be... A, you know, I don't. I don't think they need to be, but that should be emphasised in training. That you know, it, mm. it's it's you're not going to get sued if you don't start a statin or a blood pressure pill. Uh, it's perfectly yeah. appropriate to give the lifestyle, and lifestyle should be seen as a, you know, an integrative part of the management, and are just as important, or even more important. And I love your comment about the, 
you know, most of the lifestyle things we do prevent a disease which might be 10 years away. Um, so, you know, we all think, oh, well, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow, you know. Um, but with COVID, it's likely, and I, this is my strong belief, that if you change your lifestyle now, you might reduce the risk of an infection tomorrow. So mm-hmm. it might give that extra incentive for people to say, well, now, you know, now we're in lockdown. Now we're not doing much else. Let Maybe concentrate more on my health. I hope so anyway. I really hope so. Yeah, no, I, I echo that belief. And um, I, I think you hit on a really important point there about the culture within medicine and the fear of being um, you know, taken to the GMC or strung in front of people for, for giving lifestyle advice when the, the patient themselves demanded a pill or, you know, a proper quote unquote intervention. Um, and that that is echoed by a lot of my colleagues who are not privy to nutritional medicine, lifestyle medicine, and and all the other adjuncts that we have to traditional therapies. Let's talk about um, dietary toxins. I know I don't want to start because your your book is very positive and I love the title, How to Live. Um, but But you do start talking about dietary toxins, which um, I I stay clear of because um, a, a lot of people might think you know I'm scaremongering whatever, but I think it it really does warrant a conversation because a lot of people are not aware of where they lurk in food and and what things we need to actually be a bit more vocal about when when it comes to telling people what to avoid. Um, yeah, so uh, as you say, the, the advice in the book could really be split up into you know what to do more of and what to do less of. And dietary toxins could be carcinogens or pro-inflammatory chemicals or even things like processed sugar. Um, So, yeah, just coming back to your point about the title, you'd be surprised how many meetings we had about the title. I mean, really, I'm sure you know this with your one, two, three cook, which I love. I think it's called one, two, three cook or something. Three, two, one. Oh, that's the one. Sorry. Um, So, um, you know, it wasn't meant to be, you know, me sort of telling everyone how to live. You know, it is actually it was, it was a bit of play on words. There's another popular book called How Not to Die. Mm. And we, I thought, well, it's not just about how not to die. It's how to live, you know, without having or being on multiple medications, how to live without having a chronic disease, how to live with le- less fatigue, more ability to exercise. So that's what it's meant, meant to be. It's not meant to be, you know, a... a guidebook for life but anyway that's that's Mm. that's a side issue so i hope i hope people see that um so yeah so in avoiding toxins you know it's it's quite it's quite fascinating if you look on the um who website or uh, national institute of health website you know carcinogens are a really major uh, um uh, etiology of of cancer but other diseases like dementia um arthritis and they're sort of although we talk about them i'm not sure how many people take them seriously um and they they can stem from you know how the food is grown you know with pesticides herbicides so going on to organic will reduce that although on a global perspective i'm not sure how practical that is or whether it's needed um don't forget it's uh, then is the cooking process you know if you if you get meat and and burn it on a griddle 
As you know, the fat is converted into carcinogens. If you get sugary foods or, or processed carbohydrate, then, then heat them to a high temperatures in the oven. You get acrylamides, which are carcinogenic. So it's not just about the food themselves, it's how it's cooked. And then finally, it's how uh, what you eat them with. I love that a study from Maryland, which was a barbecue where they got um, half uh, half the sort of meals, which was the standard, you know, you shove a, a, a bit of meat onto a barbecue, you fry it to smithereens, it's completely black, you eat it on its own or maybe with some crisps and some sugary drink. And they measured the, the uh, there's, there's, you can measure blood, um, a blood test, which looks at the number of, uh, sort of potential mutations which have developed um, and also the number of carcinogens. And that was almost five times higher than people who'd had a similar amount of meat, but they'd cooked it more slowly, they hadn't burnt it, they'd marinated it with herbs and spices, or in that trial particularly rosemary, and they'd eaten it with a salad. So, you know, it's it's about how you eat it, what you combine things with. So we're not telling to people, you can't eat this thing, you can't go for a barbecue, but just combine it with healthy things, which are the natural antidotes. And then the other category, of course, are things that you put in cosmetics. And, you know, we can't do a lot about air pollution, perhaps, unless you move away from a main road. But you can choose to jog in a park rather than along the side of a road. You can reduce the amount of um, chemicals we use in the house, keep the windows open, have more house plants. Um, so on a daily basis, there is quite a lot you can do to reduce your um, your toxin exposure. Yeah, this whole concept of toxin load is something I think I'm learning a bit more about myself because um, I, I don't use many beauty products. Uh, I, I might use a, a face wash and a, and a moisturizer, but that, that's about it. But how much do you think we need to be wary of what we put in our skin, what we wash ourselves with? and the other products that we use in our household. I mean, it's probably become even more important considering the last year where we spent most of the time in our houses. Yeah, yeah, a lot, there's a lot of time. There's there's some very good data on, on this, and I think I quote one in the study, where if you looked at, say, a shampoo or, or something which has got some parabens or, or a deodorant's got a bit of um, aluminium, and you look at that on its own, and you say, look, you know, they're, they're very tiny amounts of chemicals, and the, the data, there's no significant link. And it's true, you know, if you just use that item with nothing else, the risk would be infinitesimally small. However, we don't, do we? We, we have a shower gel, we then, um, you know, maybe have a shampoo, maybe a deodorant, and there's a very good paper looking at, the, as you just said, the toxic load throughout the day. And you combine that with maybe some phytoestrogens in your in your or xenoestrogens in your food, um, some, some aluminium or, or maybe parabens, um, and that total load has been investigated. And it's the total load which matters, and that's not published on the back of individual products. They don't often compare their product in combination with ten others which are similar, mm. uh, and that's why they get by. You know, that's why they don't get banned. But I always mm. say to people, look, if you want to reduce, you know, I actually make my own cream. You know, I, 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 wouldn't, I don't buy commercial creams. Um, hence, I've not been sponsored by L'Oreal to give a talk, obviously. Um, <laughs> so I just get, you know, extra virgin olive oil um, and some essential oils uh, and some unprocessed. Oh, and um, there's, there's like shea butter you can get, which has not been uh, industrially processed. And just mix it up with some... Um, 
uh, emulsifiers and, and that's what we use. I use it on my kids who've got a bit of eczema um, because it's got no polyphenols and no preservatives, no scent apart from what's in the essential oils. Um, but of course, they're very difficult to make commercially because they go off. Mm. You know, they get fun- mm. fungus on top of them within four weeks. Um, so, you know, I think I think it's important, you know, and that's what I emphasize in the book, you know, try to limit the amount. If, if you have a do- if you take deodorants, just use them on days which really matter. You know, if you've got your first date or an important business meeting, uh, but don't just slap them on every day, you know, because it's the mm. amount of you're taking every day of your life, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, I'm really glad we're having this conversation. As a side note, I, I know you, you say that you can't cook, but if you were to do another book, it sounds like you could do a beauty book <laughs> with creams and potions and everything else. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it, it is a bugbear that you, you, you go to a dermatologist and instantly you get, you know, steroid cream and you look at the bases in the cream and it's all hydrocarbon, scents, preservative, pesticides. Nobody seems to talk about that. Mm. Um you know, I think there's a, you know, there are there are other people interested in this. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I think this is where commercialism isn't good. You know, if you, uh, everyone's worried about the price and, and these big companies have to make hundreds of thousands of a product and it has to last mm. for three or four years in order for them to make any money, which is they need to. Um, but, you know, I think there's a, there's a role for the smaller, more bespoke companies who can make sort of fresh products without these chemicals added yeah it's almost like um, there's a, a local beauty industry that's waiting to revolutionize currently how we buy beauty products because like you said you know if you were to just mix all those products into a little pot and then put it on the shelf it would go it would go off which is why you need those preservatives um, to make it shelf stable and drive the price down but these products would, would be pretty fantastically expensive otherwise uh, yeah, well, it, it depends, you know, if if we're more used to buying locally and uh, buying off small wholesalers. So, you know, it might, it, I think there is a, there, it is possible. Yeah. Mm, mm. It, this is probably going to be a difficult question to answer, but do you think, uh, obviously, in combination with the other effects of sedentary lifestyle, low vitamin D, poor diets, um, would that toxic load have an impact on lifestyle-related illnesses that we're seeing today? Um, yes, I mean, it, it, I, I think with the exception of um, dementia, which which is mm-hmm. sort of going going up, as you know, it's 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 mm-hmm. it's it's a very rapidly increasing disease. Not just because people are getting older. Um, you know, I think if you've got toxins, I think they they can directly affect the brain, even if you're healthy in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but for other diseases such as diabetes, heart disease, pancreatitis, I think there is clearly a balance. You know, you can, you, you know, you can you can get away with it. It's a bit like the barbecue story. You, you can get away with it. I mean, I probably drink a couple of glasses too 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 many on on a on a Friday evening. Um, you know, I, I have tried to convince myself it's just the resveratrol. But you know, there are lots of negatives in alcohol. Alcohol except is a toxin you know let's not fool ourselves um but you know it's a balance if you if you eat that with you know if you have a good meal with it um you know and then you go for a run the next day it's it's all about the balance you know it, and, and getting the balance right rather than putting people in a you know in a sort of on a pedestal and criticizing every move move they take and i believe yeah. balance is and you know the same with sunbathing I, what 
there was a famous thing called slip, slap, slop in Australia to stop, get people to slip on a hat, slop on the sun cream. And I said, nobody mentioned food and or smoking. You know, if you smoke in the sun, you've got two lots of carcinogen damaging your sun. And it's been shown over and over again that that increases skin damage. On the other hand, if you drink a glass of red wine, eat some hummus and some olives, those counterbalance the direct damage from the sun. In fact, I saw a paper the other day saying um, something like dietary sunscreens, they're called. So, you know, if you're going to go in the sun, which we all enjoy, and it's good for you to a certain extent, you know, make sure you, you know, you have fruit and vegetables and herbs and spices that day. Yeah, I, I think I came across the same paper. It was like the equivalent of two cups of grapes or something like that in combination and it improved the, um, what's the word they use? Phytoprotective effect, photoprotective yeah. effects uh, yeah. in combination with, with uh, skin block as well. So that's super interesting. And, I, and I, I agree with you. We should also be talking about diet when it comes to skin too. Well, let's talk about um, the foods that we should be embracing and, and specifically those plant nitrates that we were talking about earlier and, and what effect those might have versus the the nitrites that you, you find in processed food. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, everyone gets super confused about nitrates, nitrites, nitrous oxide, nitric oxide. Um, I mean, I was interviewed um, uh, about, well, there was a paper coming out about processed meats and, and the, the journalist said, but you're, you're saying that nitrates are bad for you but then nitrates are in plants and and yes they are um and i was trying to explain that um when you have a nitrate in in meat you're having it with protein and that's then converting to nitrous amines in the stomach which is actually the carcinogen mm. but if you have uh, nitrates in plants the polyphenols and the vitamin c in the plant converts that nitrates into nitric oxide, which actually is beneficial. It causes dilation of the blood pressure, brings your, bl um, your blood pressure down, gives, oxygenates your tissues. So it's, 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 again, the combination. And obviously, when you have it in meat, you've got other bad things in the meat, like uh, aromatic hydrocarbons. And if you've burnt it, you've got smoke. Or if it's smoked, you've got smoke directly. Um, so, yeah, nitrates aren't bad per se and you've just mentioned you know celery beetroot pomegranate mm. uh these are those are particularly rich in in nitrate healthy nitrates uh so if you've got blood pressure problems or if you want to improve your sports performance those are the foods you should be taking yeah yeah i'm glad we clarified that difference because it's something i get asked about a lot as well and, and the the way you've explained it is um is, is bang on um th there's a lot of talk around uh, lectins, uh, phytic acid, and why they might be bad for you. Um, I, I, I probably get a couple of messages uh, two, three times a month actually about why am I using beans and lentils when aren't they meant to be anti-nutrients and removing thing, minerals from, you, from your um, body and, and how it's bad for you. C can you speak a bit uh, on, the, on that topic? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of locked my way in my office for about two weekends to try to get my head around this because it, it is complicated. Mm. Um, I, I found out I was gluten intolerant, not, alert, not celiacs, a, a few years ago and, and switching off, uh, you know, processed uh, bread, eating sourdough bread. I can now enjoy sourdough bread nicely. Um, 
Uh, but then I noticed, um, and other people have noticed, that you know they were getting the same symptoms of bloating and tiredness if they weren't eating gluten, but they were eating like oats, which doesn't have mm. gluten in. And oats has, you know, like other grains and pulses, as we've just mentioned, has, has lectins and phytic acid, which actually people don't tend to talk about, but you get the same intolerance to those as well. And then you've got the paleo enthusiasts who uh, I... Um, and there's a place called Tarifa in Spain, which I love. I go windsurfing and kite surfing there. And there's a there's a friend of mine there called Rowan, who's a, who's an enormous paleo enthusiast. So he's he's banned anything grains from his diet. Uh, and it's true, you know, if if you have an intolerance, it, it does give you a lift. Mm. Uh, but these foods, especially the grains, they actually contain, uh, you know, prebiotics which help gut health. Uh, and uh, the FODMAP people are saying, well, we shouldn't be having beans because it's, uh, it, will, it, it will cause gas. And, it, 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 and I've, I figured it out, I think. Uh, you know, basically, if you have lots of beans and are not used to them, and there's data to support, it's not just my opinion, you do get wind, <laughs> you, know, you do get mm. bloating. So you instantly feel bad. If you've got a gut which is leaky, it's been exposed to gluten and phytic acid for years, so it's thin... It gets very sensitive. You only have to take one tiny bit of bread and suddenly you bloat up again. Mm. Um, but if you allow the gut to heal, so if you eat these beans and you eat lots of healthy bacteria-rich foods, eventually your gut starts healing. And you don't then get the gas and the bloating when you take the beans. So um, the FOD, what the FODMAP is doing is giving you an instant relief because you're not getting the wind and the bloating. But in the long term, my opinion is it's actually making it worse. Mm. So um, I don't know why there's such an enthusiasm for it. And the same with grains. As long as you're not, if, as long as you've got good gut health otherwise, introducing some grain, grain, grains and beans will actually in the long term improve your gut health. Um, so that, that's my, my take on it, that, uh, you know, don't be a paleo enthusiast and don't be a FODMAT in, in enthusiast in the long term. In the long term, exactly, yeah. And th th I'm glad we're talking about this because it's something I get asked about a lot. And I always pre-warn people that if they're going to start, you know, eating uh, chickpeas and beans and you know, whole grains and their starting point from the, from the start line is a quite processed, refined diet, you've got to go slow yeah, yeah. because you're going to know about it and everyone else is going to know about it as well in your vicinity. So you have to go very slow when starting a new diet, any new diet really, yeah. or a new way of eating. Um, and, and otherwise you'll fall into that camp and you'll be led by certain advocates of different diets and say, well, you had these symptoms. If you take them away, this gets better. Ergo, you should follow this way for the rest of your life. And you know, we're all on a continuum when it comes to our... Well, we and it does work. You know, if you say to someone who's not used to beans and they've been taking beans and getting bloated and someone comes along and says, go on to the FODMAP, you're going to feel better a week mm. later, but you're not going to feel better six months later. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about, um, I mean, you, you, you tackled some really heavy, we're not going to get a, a chance to go through everything, obviously, but um, uh, fat, cholesterol, dairy, eggs, you talk about a lot of this um, stuff in the book. I want to specifically hone down on uh, milk and cancer. Um, I'm sure you get asked about this a lot in clinic. We have discussed this briefly before. What, what are your thoughts on, on milk and cancer? Um it's a tricky one because there's not, you know, there's no randomised data giving half mm. the population milk and half not. 
Um, you know, in in the in in the sort of eighties, there was this thing that you know because the, the Asia don't drink milk and they have less cancer. Milk is therefore harmful. So it's not really statistically valid. If you, as we get older, we do tend to get more lactose intolerant. So link, milk will will cause a sort of a bit of an inflammation in your gut, which is which is not a good thing. Um, we do know that milk has, um, you know, has hormones. The cows are injected with hormones. They have they've, they've mm-hmm. got insulin-like growth factors, which are a bit concerning. You know, they can drive cancer cells, etc. Uh, we also know that you know milk is can be fattening. Um, it's got cholesterol. So if you're struggling with your weight or cholesterol, probably not a good idea. And if you're overweight, you're more likely to get cancer. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, putting it into the category of a toxin is is definitely the other is, is too extreme. I mean, having a little bit of milk in your tea and coffee, um, having a say a cortado or, or a coffee with a small amount of milk rather than a massive um, latte, you see sometimes like a pint of coffee, um, and and also the if you actually look at the large cohort studies about milk, if you look at the data carefully. If you take out cheese from the evaluation, which is generally beneficial, um, it, it was really just the, the 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 whole milk seemed to be the thing which is edging on, you know, especially if you have too much on the harm. Because um, in fact, there was one study which showed if you excluded ice cream, for some reason, ice cream was uh, not harmful. But anyway, I won't go there. Um, <laughs> but certainly, proce- uh, if you uh, process cheese, especially cheese which has been um, matured or fermented, um, there's, there's vitamin K2, the lactose has been um, broken down. They tend to, as long as you don't eat too many, they tend to be beneficial. So I actually encourage people to take a little bit of cheese, which tastes nice as well, um, you know, as, as good for bone health. And it doesn't, the, the evidence isn't strong at all that it causes mm. cancer or, or risks of other disease in moderation. Yeah, so it, it, I suppose it goes down to those things that we were talking about earlier about how the food is produced, what you're eating it with, and what the rest of your diet looks like as well. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I always talk to people about uh, milk and, and cancer, and, and you know, saying that basically it has mixed results, and and you know, there's no one way either either way. But I, I certainly wouldn't advise having like gallons of it, like you just described there. And you know, there are lots of different alternatives for people who don't want to consume milk for whatever the reason might be, which are fortified with B12, uh, iodine, and uh, and calcium too. Uh, estrogenic, effect, you mentioned xenoestrogens before, and estrogen. I, I wonder if we can clarify where we tend to get xenoestrogens in the diet or the atmosphere and, and what impact that might have. Um, yeah, so... Uh, phytoestrogens are, are estrogens within food, uh, like soya beans, chickpeas, and most studies show they're beneficial. You know, I mean, and there's been some large studies. Xenoestrogens are uh, uh, chemicals which are usually man-made, which are estrogenic, and they act on the estrogen receptor very different to the phytoestrogens. The phytoestrogens tend to sit on the estrogen receptor and actually reduce estrogen. Um, it's called down sig- signaling. So effectively, they're reducing the impact of, sig- of estrogen in your body. Xenoestrogens sit on the estrogen receptor and literally switch it on. So your the effect of estrogen in your body will dramatically increase. And these are things like um, car fumes, uh, pesticides, herbicides, aluminium, parabens. 
And that's why, and plastics, you know, and that's mm. the, that's why, you know, people are saying, I'm not, you know, I'm being charged 10p for a plastic bag in Tesco. That's why, because these plastic bags and lots of other things are going into the general population, into the environment and slowly estrogenizing all of us, but in a bad way. You know, it's the mm. it's the it's the Easterns which really trigger the Eastern receptor and tell the Eastern receptor to do its to do its harm. Mm. And, and and on that note, um, you mentioned pesticides. There is that an argument for organic food? I mean, I, I know it might not be practical. I mean, neither of us are farmers here, but you know, if if we were to design an agricultural system that removed pesticides herbicides and and all the other um potential toxic effects would that be something that we should be looking at uh, i think so i mean as you know from the chapter in the book there's lots of other benefits for the environment of growing organically like having mm. natural hedgerows with more insects and blah blah less soil erosion mm. and all those other things but purely on a health basis it there is there's not many trials or randomized trials which show organic food um actually produces less illness than than mm -hmm. um than standard foods there's a, there's a couple which i've i've listed mm. um there's certainly evidence that if you eat organically you're more likely you get more polyphenols vitamins and essential nutrients in your body so they tend to be healthier foods the way they're grown and they certainly have less potential toxins they have you know less herb, uh, pesticides herbicides so it's just hard to prove that um, yeah. You know, you, you need, uh, you, you know, these trials would have to be over a, t you know, a 10 year period in thousands of people uh, to, mm. to show any statistical benefit. But the common sense um, uh, point of view is, yes, if you can introduce as much organic as you can, and there's other ways you can wash your vegetable. I mean, leafy, you know, paradoxically, something like salad or, or lettuce actually has a big surface area. So it's actually got quite a lot of um, toxins on it so to just get into mm. the habit of washing everything and if you had a choice you know buying organic but i don't believe you need to completely go that way yeah yeah exactly i always say whenever i get asked this question my primary focus is to get more plants on people's plates and the secondary objective is you know to to go organic where possible but i don't i, I mean i live in london i'm right next to a uh, a road I think I've got bigger things yes. that are probably increasing my toxic load than the food, although everything is cumulative, I, I, I guess. So, you know, I, I try and make a concerted effort if I can. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, in, in, you're in the sort of basin of London. You're going to be exposed, um, you know, daily. And, and obviously, if you go jogging, I would recommend you go into the park. There was a study comparing jogging down Oxford Street compared to Hyde Park. So, uh, yes, uh, yeah, I remember um, that. Which I quite like. So you can, you know, limit it a bit to make sure you're around trees and things. Um, mm. I recently bought a, a little device, I'm probably showing my paranoia here, which you can measure the amount of uh, toxins in the air. Um, ah. And it's actually, you still get more in your house than outdoors. So actually keeping a window open in, in the day, it, you know, it's just oh. practical things like that uh, can help. I'm going to have to get that device. <laughs> I'm just fascinated to, to know what the state of my, my household is. Well, you like. can have mine because you get paranoid for the first year and then you ignore it completely. <laughs> and, <you're> so, going... <laughs> and they're quite expensive. But it is quite, you know, it is. it does show quite clearly. You know, if you're using household, um, you know, 
furniture polish or or, mm. or dishwasher fluid you know you see a peak in these things which we're breathing um yeah. whereas if you have uh, you know a clean house get rid of the dust keep the windows open it does reduce it so there's lots of little things you can do but it's very hard to prove really if that's going to stop your risk of you know dementia 20 years later it just it's just about trying your best in all parts of your life you know breathe what yeah, you breathe, exactly. what you eat. just just Changing a few things, you know, if you could categorize them according to your washing up, your um, beauty uh, hygiene, you know, keeping plants. And you've got a beautiful list of plants um, to, to keep in your bedroom and stuff um, as well. So, you know, th there are a few things that you can do. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, eggs. So eggs have gone up and down in favor depending on who you speak to i've had a number of different opinions on the podcast in the past so you know i i like to get opinions from everyone whether they be vegan researchers or doctors or or people who are of a different persuasion or low carb whatever so looking considering the amount of work you've done for the book as well what is your perspective on on eggs and and whether they're something to to keep in the diet or something that we should radically remove in the same way we would remove a carcinogen yeah um again i like you i was i was confused with it, and that's why i think i've done half a chapter on eggs because i mean having having designed uh, or looked at very large cohort data we've recently published one looking at tea for example showing it was beneficial but it's it's incredibly complicated to analyze these large data sets and a lot of them the last three i've noticed with eggs have grouped eggs together with meat so mm. and the headline comes out as eggs are harmful but if you actually read it you say no they didn't look at eggs on their own they looked at eggs dairy and meat as, as an entity and the, there was only the journalist or the way it was emphasized they said and anyway the so then that sort of prompted me to think well the data isn't strong anyway um but there was, a, for example, there was a study saying more than one egg a day increased your risk of prostate cancer. But again, mm, that was, I remember that that was one. yeah, that was linked with with meat. But even if that was true, then you look to see what is it in eggs which could be harmful. Well, the yolk is a little bit fattening. So if you're overweight, um, you know, I see patients from all parts of their cancer process, including some, unfortunately, who are quite um, ill and losing weight. And we know that having low proteins in your bloodstream is very bad. So egg whites, for example, is an excellent source of protein. So I'd strongly say, look, if you don't want to eat the, the, the yellow, at least eat the egg whites. But the bottom line is there are chemicals in eggs which are pro-inflammatory. They can increase gut inflammation, which, as, as you know, and we've talked about, is a bad thing. It causes leaky gut and all sorts of things. But if you eat an egg with um, foods which are anti-inflammatory uh, and, and the trials support this, that if you if you look at the patients, if you do the subpopulation in an analysis where they've eaten eggs, but eaten lots of spinach and, and, and other things, there's no increased risk from them. In fact, there's a benefit. So it's the same thing we've all been talking about. If you're going to have eggs for breakfast, don't have it with bacon, sausages, black pudding, white pudding. You have it with, you know, wilted spinach, a little bit of sprinkled um, pomegranate, mushrooms, tomatoes, coriander. And then you get the benefit of the eggs and any slight ben uh, risk associated will completely be overtaken by the other things. So it's all about combining the eggs with other things. But yeah, that's, uh, that's I think, the solution. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I think 
because dietary studies are so hard to do, we tend to look at things in uh, a singular way, whether it be uh, an egg or you know a particular supplement or you know one type of food. Whereas that's not how we eat. We, we eat food. We eat plates of food. We eat combinations of food. And I think it's that that synergy which is really hard to study that often gets forgotten with these things. So yes, if you look at egg, you can describe it as high in choline and B12 and you know bit, bits of vitamin D and good protein. And there's some inflammatory elements as well. However, when you combine it as part of that plate that you just described, you get the benefits and you mitigate any potential yeah, risks. Absolutely. Well put. Yeah, great. Well, I'm, I'm glad we got to the, And, you know, whether you choose to eat eggs or not, it's, it's up to you. No, no one here is saying you have to eat eggs. But I, I, don't, I think similarly, you shouldn't be put off eggs because of some of those uh, headlines. Um, one for the vegans uh, and for, one for, for people who eat 100% plant-based is um, plant protein and bone health. Um, there are some benefits uh, to be associated with plant proteins, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, in terms of, you know, osteoporosis and osteopenia is very um, common in the UK. Vitamin D deficiency is common. And certainly after cancer, you're more likely to get osteoporosis. Um, and, you know, strangely, people say, well, I'll have a steak to improve my bone health. It, it's, it, it doesn't. It's, um, in fact, um, it probably harms it a little bit. So yeah, plant, plant, there's loads of the epic studies, I can quote you 10 mm. studies, all show that the more plant proteins you eat, soya, uh, chickpeas, beans, they're the things which protect, protect your bones. Gut health is one of the biggest factors for protecting your bones as well. So um, yeah, so the vegans, one up for the vegans on that side. Um, uh, you know, the only thing about vegan is, is the b12 is the, is the biggest concern um mm. and i was doing some research or, well not research i was reading uh, other people's research on how to increase your b12 if you don't eat meat mm. and you know obviously seaweed does have some b12 as well as iodine which we also need to increase in our diets otherwise we'll all get goiters like we did in the two centuries ago You've just got to be careful with the seaweed foods that it is uh, and the spirulina and all those things um, uh, that they are uh, they're, they're, they're wild. Um, if, if, you, if you put them into these big vats and just feed them sort of nutrients, you, you think you're getting something healthy, but they don't actually produce B12 in that way. It has to be sort of wild, uh, wild seaweed and wild... Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, those, uh, I can't remember the name, the, the algae, the wild algae, that's the one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do, do they bioaccumulate as well in terms of toxins in, in, the, in the sea or is that, is that just fish? Um, that's the negative. Um, yeah, and people, <laughs> I've, I've had those questions saying, well, you're, you're telling me to eat seaweed. I mean, I'm from South Wales and uh, we used to love lava bread. I have to say, mm. I wouldn't touch any lava bread from the Bristol Channel anymore, um, <laughs> seeing the colour of the water. So, yeah, you, you, it is true. There, there's, there was, I read one study about, you know, they are, it's mainly on the surface. So if you mm. wash them, you do significantly reduce the number of pollutants which are in them. It's not absorbed into the plant as much. So it's really important to wash your seaweed. Um, and, you know, try to get them from, from you know, better sources, I suppose. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm not really skilled on knowing where they're from, but certainly, you know, the Atlantic and the, the western coast of, of Brittany and places like that, that's where the lava bread, for example, which is a seaweed, comes from now. And I would trust mm. that better. Mm. On the subject of the environment, um, 
you know, we had we had a lot of uh, scaremongering around um, radiation towards the start of the pandemic and whether you know coronavirus is related to mobile stands and all that kind of stuff. Are there any concerns with regards to um, EMF and radiation um, and, and overall health? And are there things that we should be doing pragmatically to, to reduce any potential risks? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been looking a lot at that and, and you know, through oncology for, for 30 years, that's, that's coming up um, regularly in terms of whether it's a cancer risk. Um, mm-hmm. The, the data is pretty poor, to be honest. There was, a, there was a, some very high frequency mass actually um, in, in Italy where they did show a link between certain leukemias if you live very close to them. Um, you know, obviously the mobile phone issue, whether you're more likely to have a, a brain, um, a brain cancer. Um, mm. You know, there's, to be honest, nothing's been established, to be honest. It doesn't really mm-hmm. produce radiation. It's more radio frequency. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they have found brain damage, uh, you know, heat damage, in fact, if people use the phone a lot. So it does mm-hmm. make sense to use, um, you know, to use headphones when you can. But it's not really been been established, to be honest. I'm not saying it's mm-hmm. it, you know it will never be established, but at the moment there's not strong evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's anecdotal reports. There's some women who put their phone in their bra. Uh, it's a it's a, it you know it's it's not an uncommon habit. And there's some cases where women have had breast cancer underneath where they normally put their phone. So perhaps I wouldn't mm-hmm. recommend that. And mm-hmm. they say men shouldn't stick it down the front of their trousers. Uh, it's all anecdotal. But it sort of yeah. makes sense, really, doesn't it? Just to sort of keep it away from your body a bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I echo that. That there isn't anything that I can say hand on heart it, that is proving a, a link. But you know, if it makes you feel better for whatever reason to to put your phone somewhere else, then you know that, that's fine until we know a bit more. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Good. Um, the uh, the last thing I want to ask you about because there's so many things I can ask you about in this book, but the, I was really interested to know uh, in the uh, benefits of exercise as as you always talk about, um, but how nutrition could even enhance the effect of of exercise as well, and if there are combinative effects or synergistic effects, uh, or maybe even um, exponential impacts. Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of time, it depends why you're exercising, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're exercising to lose weight, um, well, we should all exercise for lots of reasons. But say if your primary emphasis is to lose weight, I always say, you know, exercise on an empty stomach. Exercise first thing in the morning or before your lunch or preferably both. Because your body then looks for the energy not in what's in your stomach, it's in your fat reserve. So it's reversing the the energy storage mechanism. Um if you you know if you if you want to if you're not used to exercising or you, or you want to sort of improve your times and you're pushing yourself a little bit you have to be worried about increasing free radicals and i think you know pr- making sure you have plenty of polyphenols and and nitrate rich foods such as uh, as you said pomegranate uh, grapes Broccoli, you know, take your pick. I think it's good. Mm. Cherries. Um, it's, uh, it's a good idea to to make sure you you really on the day you're exercising, you really load yourself with those, uh, and you mm. will see a benefit as well. I mean, you'll. It's not only reducing the free radical; it actually helps with the joint health. So a lot of uh, athletes have to stop because they've pulled a muscle or they've damaged a joint, and it protects you against that. Um, so yeah, there is. There's a. You know, there's there's. Y- y- 
it's not just about the exercising. You need to sort of think what you're you're doing at the same time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, to that point about a high polyphenol rich diet, it's going to improve your gut health. It's going to improve weight control. In fact, I think you've spoken about weight control in, in the book as well. And, um, you know, how it's not just about calorie restriction or energy restriction. It's about introducing things like spices and herbs and, and even some, some novel fruits as well. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Well, Prof, this has been fantastic. <laughs> I, I highly recommend people get the book. Thank you very much. I'll be much. shouting about it for the rest of the year as well, because I think it's just a, a fantastic manual. And you, the way it's spaced out as well with paragraphs as well, it's not, you can you can just dive into it and dive out as well. If you have a, have a question or you've read a headline, you can go back into reading the book and stuff. And, and I hope you'll, you'll update it as well every, every yeah, few years I, or so. Yeah, I, I hope so. It's a different, you know, some people read it from front to, to back um, and then you'll find there's some sections which might have repeated themselves a little bit. But we also want the chapters to be sort of standalone. So um, yeah. you have to do you have to repeat it. So if you want to just read about gut health or you know, how to improve my exercise performance, hopefully you can dip in and just use it as a bit of a reference guide uh, as, as well. So, I, you know, I'm. I'm it was it was a nice experience to write it. it you know financially as you know it's not a big situation you probably get paid uh, you know less than the cleaner in the hospital uh, by far but it's a satisfying experience and it, it's a way of processing your thoughts so that if you know you can just understand the issues better so i really it's really nice to have your comments and and comments from other readers which we're getting most days so it's thanks for your support definitely of course of course i can't wait to continue to support it thank you so much robert honestly it's been brilliant Thank you so much for listening to today's pod. I really do hope you get a copy of How to Live. It is a fantastic resource. I'm diving in into it every now and then as well, um, just when I need to refresh something or check up a reference. Uh, and, I, and I really hope it's going to be one of those books that gets new editions every few years or so just to keep it fresh because it's a brilliant piece of work and I, I cannot recommend it enough. Thank you so much for listening to the pod today and I will see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 